Well, we are starting a brand new series today that's going to carry us right up until the Sunday before Easter. So it's a four-week series. And this one has been kind of rolling around in me for a while. And it started when my daughter, Brooklyn, won an award at the science fair. And the school she goes to, the science fair is like bigger than like the state playoffs in a sport. Science fair is like it, man. It is a big, big deal. And so all my kids had to have to do the science fair. And um, she got honorable mention in the science fair, which we were excited about. It's no joke. This year in the person that won first, aren't they like going to nationals? One first in ours, the person that won first in ours is representing San Angelo at nationals. I mean, the, the school takes it super serious. Science, it's a big deal. And um, so she got honorable mention. And I just, and from that, it just began to roll in me about so many times we celebrate the first place in life. But really, I love it that it's called honorable. That this was such a big deal that even though it didn't get first place, it's worth talking about. It's worth mentioning. It was, it was well done. And our lives should be lived that way. Our lives should be that when they're spoken about, that it's with honor. That there is this place of that. And when we look at that, that we can all win. But we have to understand that, that first and foremost, we, have, we can win in life without being first. And really, the truth is, the only way we can really win in life is by not putting ourselves first. And that's what we're going to begin to plow into and to look at. So if you've got your version app open, you can follow in your notes there. If you've got your, your wonderful paper bulletin that we provided you, let's just go ahead and get into this. And Because uh, the truth is, is that God wants us to win in life. God wants that for us. He desires it for us. We, that's why the Bible uses phrases like, we are more than conquerors. A conqueror is a winner. And some of that's more than conquerors superseded that. God wants us to win in life. Jesus went to bat for us, and he took care of it because we were in a place that we were stuck, and we couldn't get a real win. And so Jesus came in and got the win for us. God desires that for each of our lives. But we've got to begin to wrap our minds around that it's going to look a little different than the way the world paints a win. I've shared with y'all before and um, that uh, I'm not super athletic and I decided to do something athletic. So I decided to that I was going to run a marathon. So I began training for this marathon and I'm in the middle of this marathon and I had some goals that I wanted to hit. I'd already had my moment that I realized I'm not going to be the winner. The guy who won that was a Boston qualifying event. So the guy that won that went on to run the Boston Marathon. I knew that wasn't going to be me. So I had embraced the fact that I wasn't going to be the winner. And I had even embraced the fact that maybe I would come in last. Maybe I would. I didn't really want to, but maybe I would. That my race was set out that I wanted to run my race. And I had a certain time that I wanted to run it in. And I felt like it was an achievable thing. Well, at some point, at, after about mile 17, the wheels came off, and it was just bad. Everybody talks about hitting the wall at like mile 20-something. Man, mine was mile 17. My wall chased me down and punched me early. It was ugly. And so I'm coming along, and we were, my race was between, you started at the edge of Odessa, you ran to Midland, and you turn around and run back to Odessa. 
And so uh, we're coming back. Well, I didn't realize it that the whole way to Midland, and I had a tailwind. I had a little help. I turned around and we're heading back to Odessa, and it had, it had snaked around, so you don't have to head back till mile 17. And mile 17 is just, man, just headwind just hit me in the face. And I had to break stride and I had to walk. And that was so disheartening because I did not want to walk. So I'm sitting there walking, I'm doing my thing, and I'll run a little bit, and I'll walk a little bit, and I'm pretty frustrated. And then I get some fresh inspiration. I see, I'm not going to use an age because I don't want to offend anybody, okay? I see an old guy, okay? We'll just leave it at that. He's older than me. And um, in front of me, he's about a quarter of a mile ahead of me, and he's walking a lot. And I'm like, okay, I'm not hitting my time. I'm having a walk, but I have a new goal. I'm going to beat that guy. <laughs> I found purpose after mile 17. So all of a sudden now I've gone in with a game plan and now I'm going to beat that guy. So, and I should have known, this guy, he's considerably older than me. This is probably not his first marathon like it's my first marathon. He's probably just doing this because he's done a kajillion of them. And he just does it to stay in shape. So I began to just turn it up a little bit. So I begin to turn it up, and, and he would and I, he would jog a little bit, and then he would walk. So I decided if I would jog for a few more minutes after he starts walking, eventually I'm going to catch up to this guy. And I've easily got an hour to try to make this happen then. And so, and so, and I'm, so I, I began to do this, and sure enough, I began to, to catch up onto him. And I get to about where the drums are, and this guy's right here. And my wife will tell you, I'm not the most quiet-footed individual around, okay? So he begins to hear my size 12s pop, 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 pop behind him. And all of a sudden, this old guy does a little kick over the shoulder. Boom! And he's just gone! That old guy, he's sitting there. By the time the race ended, I did not see that man cross the finish line. He was that far ahead. I did not even see it happen. And I had totally exhausted myself even further than I already was. I had already spent in trying to make myself first over him. All of a sudden, I was doing fine until I decided that now it's important. This race isn't about all the other entrants. It's me and the old guy, and I'm beating him. And all of a sudden, when I put myself in a place of having to be first, I began to make poor decisions. I began to exhaust myself even more, and I had the worst loss of the whole thing. And the fact that my five-and-a-half-year-old son, they drop me off early in the morning, I start this thing in the dark, and then they come along, and I take off, and they come back and check on me a mile 20-something, running down the highway. And there's my five-year-old son who sees his dad in the marathon. <laughs> I'm telling you, it was a miracle. I was still up. There was this little car that would come up and say, do you want me to carry you in? I was like, do not ask me this again. I am not going to be carried in. And so when I get there and I cross the finish line and I do this little jog from there to there so I can run across the finish line, and the first thing Carson tells me is, Dad, you were walking. 
you know what? I don't know. Maybe I'd have been walking anyways. But had I not, I think had I not tried to chase down the old guy, I probably would have had a little in the tank for the last couple of miles to finish strong, and my boy could have seen me doing things right. Because see, the thing is, is the win, this win that God has for us, it does not come from focusing on ourselves. It comes from loving God and loving others. See, Mark 9, verse 33 through 35 says, They came to Capernaum, this is Jesus and his disciples, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? He wants to hear it out of their mouths. He wants them to embrace what was going on. What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet. They're all. Nobody saying a word. But they kept quiet. Because on the way they had been arguing about who was the greatest. Now, these are guys who walked away from their careers. These are guys who had given up everything to follow Jesus. This isn't super early in their discipleship process. And this desire to be first is still brewing on the inside of them to the point that they would argue about it. That they would get in each other's business about it and begin to, to bone chests and talk about how they one of them deserves to be first over another one. And... Jesus, he just sits down. He says, sitting down, Jesus called the twelve. And he pulls them over to him. And he gives them this super huge, important piece of information. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Now remember, Jesus and the Father, they're, they're connected. They're one. So this, what the Father knew, Jesus knew. And so I am convinced that Jesus is sitting there and he's looking at each and every one of their faces. And he knows this truth that's rolling around. It comes out in Jeremiah 29 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. As he looks into every one of their faces, that's rolling around on the inside of him, that he has a plan for each one of them to give them a hope and, to a, and a future, not to harm them. He's got a plan for their life. But it doesn't involve them self-promoting. It involves them focusing on others and being willing to be a servant. His plan that was good and wonderful was focused and and fulfilled as they would embrace servanthood. Their number one place to get hijacked for God's plan wasn't somebody else trying to promote higher than them. The only person that can hijack God's plan for your life is you. Say, so, well, I married the wrong person. That don't matter. God still has a plan for you. Why, well, my parents, I was raised in this kind of a household. God still has a plan for you. Well, my boss is mean, or I didn't. I made some poor decisions, or all of this. God still has a plan for you. We have a phrase in our society where we'll look and we mean it in the most caring sort of way. Where we, if we somebody's heading off into a situation that we're concerned for them, we'll say, "You take care of yourself." We really are caring about them when we say that. 
But when we look at the negative ramifications of that, oh my gosh, it's so ugly. <laughs> we only send, say that to people when we're that are going in to ugly situations. Okay? One of the most violent places in America right now is inner city Detroit. Okay? We're all if you we found out you were gonna to go to inner city G Detroit, then we might have a tendency to say, hey, you watch out after yourself. But if we feel like that the environment is not caustic, it's not going to tear you up, we don't say that. When somebody says, hey, guess what, I'm going to go to Grandma's house, and you, you, you take care of yourself. <laughs> now, some of you may have that kind of grandma. Some of y'all might have a Medea kind of grandma or something. Like but, um, you know, most of us, if we sit there and say, we're going to Grandma's house, people don't go, all right, that's a, that's a wallet in the front pocket trip, buddy. Grab the pepper spray. We're going to Grandma's house. No, it's because we're sitting there and, and we're, the situation is fearful. Every time, every time we begin to default into putting ourselves first. It's because we're getting into fear. We're not trusting God. Every time we begin to put ourselves first, it's this place where we're simply not trusting. Because when we're relaxed and we believe everything's okay, we don't, we, we, we'll chill. We won't do that. We won't try to take care of ourselves. We'll let ourselves relax. But we always do that. Whenever there's this place of fear. See, the truth is, is that God's the one that's got our back. And since he's focused on us, and we really, if we really believe that, then we can, we can focus on others. Because he's got us. He's watching out for us. You can't do any better a job than God. In fact, the only thing you can do is, is override him and begin to take things back. You can begin to mess things up. Let's trust God. The truth is, is your best life is not centered on you. Anytime we begin to say, we'll look at a situation and say, what's best for me on this deal? You are going to pick a worse outcome. You are. You are. What's in this for me? It is dangerous to have that short of a focus on yourself. When I was learning how to drive, I, I was freaking my mom out. She's like, Brian, there's all this stuff. Why are, you, why are you not being a good driver? What's the deal? You're an intelligent young man. What's the problem? And she, they finally figured out. I couldn't catch it. I didn't see it. But I was looking about 10 feet past the hood. Like where, it, where my car was going to be, like in 10 feet. When everything's happening way out here. And then, man, I'd sit there and pull out in front of people and do all kinds of dumb stuff because that's happening way down there and I'm looking 10 feet in front and just watching out after my little bubble and that was the most destructive thing I possibly could have done. When I finally got my feet, I began to watch out after others. That's why watching out and, and making sure you don't run into other people, to caring for other people on the road, guess who gets also protected in that? You do. You do. See, being last isn't about being last. It's about your heart to put others first. It's about you getting involved in God's win for those He loves. 
See, the best way this works is when we're all involved in each other's win. We all play our role in each other embracing that full life that God has for us. Matthew 10, 39 says, Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Why? Because the fullness of your life does not exist in you focusing on you. The fullness of what you were created for exists in the, the place that you plug in and bring in benefit and service to others. That's where your fullness is achieved. 1 John 4 says, This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. 1 John 4, 19 says we love because He first loved us. And then Ephesians gives us this beautiful picture of how this works. How God loved us begins to benefit and that God in meeting us where we are, it brings about a win for Him and a win for us. And then we see when we reflect this in our relationships, it has the exact same outcome. This is, God, the ultimate is about full community. And when you reduce any community back down to its core agents, it gets down to family. And you reduce any family down to its core agents, you get down to a husband and a wife. Let's look at Ephesians and let's see how this principle works out in community reduced down to its, low, to its most common place. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church. Okay, let's let's define let's define love here. Okay, our culture will do things like the old uh, song of "Hello, I love you. Won't you tell me your name?" That's not love. That song makes just as much sense if it's if it says "Hello, you're hot. Won't you tell me your name?" That's what he's saying. That's what's being said. And so many times we think that, that this concept of attractiveness and chemistry and all that kind of stuff is love. And this is going so much deeper than that. This is not husbands think your wives are hot. That's not what it says. My wife is hot. I don't have a problem with But it says husbands love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The picture of what Jesus did for the body of Christ and his bride is he gave himself up for her. Now we're about to find out that when he did this, she is not the definition of hotness. To make her holy. Unholy is not a word we throw around so that doesn't give us the creeps to think, okay, she's unholy. I understand that one. But holy is this concept that, it, that, it is, that there's this worth and this value and that it's, it's all that it can be, that it is, it's set apart. Cleansing her by the washing of with the water of the Word. She needed a bath. The bride of Christ needed a bath. She's dirty and stinky. That does not fall in the area of hotness. But that's who Christ gave himself up for her. She was imperfect and didn't have all her stuff together. She needed to comb her hair. 
She needed some deodorant. Says to present himself to her as a radiant church. That radiant is this concept of glowing and, 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 and this thing of having this beauty that stands out. We've all seen the commercials, you know, where the model walks in and her hair's all blowing and there's the, it's backlit and she's doing this number, going hair. That's radiant, okay? The church, who Jesus loved like a husband should love a wife, is not radiant. She's got a bedhead. She's got the little stuff in the corners of her eyes in the morning. She is not radiant. He's going to present her without stain. She's all stained up. Or wrinkle. She needs Botox. <laughs> Not really. Um, or, <laughs> or any other blemish. But is holy and blameless. See, Jesus gave himself up for his bride. Not because... He's like, man, she's gonna, she looks so good on my arm. Let's picture that on Jesus' arm. What she was learning. But he turns his love, transforms her into holy, radiant, without spot or wrinkle or blemish. That's what his love does. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Husbands ought to love their wives like they do their own bodies. Now this makes no sense to women. That's why God didn't say this to women. Because we don't want women loving their husbands like they love their own bodies. There'd be no love. <laughs> women just don't. I don't care how good they look. They just don't. But man, a guy can do two push-ups. Hey, I still got it! It's true, it's true. Most men... Most men say that they are better than average in attractiveness. That means it's, it's statistically impossible. You can't have more than half being better than more than half. It can't happen. Yet, most women, most women round themselves down and they think they're in the bottom half of it. And they're, not, they're not getting the picture either. They're prettier than they think they are. They don't get it. But see, us guys, man, we, we think we've got it. And in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Man, we can just eat on that all day long. Us guys, when we have a hard time loving our wife, God, there's so much time that comes right back here. We don't love ourselves and allow God to work it within us. After all, no one ever hated their own body. No man ever hated their own body. But they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of His body. See, as this begins to give itself up into love, not because of where things are at, but because where things are going to go. But because there's a, a process at work. Then guess what? Then Jesus, what does He end up with? A radiant bride. Him giving himself up ends up with a radiant bride. Gentlemen, as we begin to love our wives like Christ loves the church, even though our wives may not always do everything quite right, guess what we end up with? That radiant bride. 
We begin, as we begin to selflessly serve each other, we begin to make each other better. Not putting all these demands and cracking the whip and saying, you better step up and, and you need to do all this stuff. No, we need to step up and we need to serve one another. And it brings out the best in each other. That's how this works. I love what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity. That true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You can never get humble by sitting there and tearing yourself down. That's not what God's asking us. He's asking us to build each other up. That's where our humility is. Let's build each other up. See, the truth is the fastest way to mess up something truly good is to have people look out for themselves. James 3.16 says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you have disorder and every evil practice. Some place that should have harmony and beauty and wonder and, and things working well, when you put selfish ambition and envy in it, the wheels come off and you'll find all sorts of evil. This is, this is New Testament word, evil. It's bad, ugly, wicked stuff. That's why some of the stuff with church, church ought to be a wonderful, beautiful thing, but you get people getting selfish ambition and envy in there, and you can have some ugly mess inside of church. That's because we've got the wheels off. That's why it can get that way in families, when families ought to work together and be a, be a thing of beauty and be a life-giving place, when there's envy inside a family, when there's selfish ambition inside a family. All of a sudden, everything, the wheels come off, and it's, it's wicked and messed up stuff happens. But as soon as we begin to put one another first, oh my gosh, it begins to turn things around. James 3, verse 17 through 18 says, But the wisdom... That comes. This is the very next verse. The very next verse after that, that about selfish ambition. It says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure and then peace loving and considerate and submissive. All these things that are directly on the opposite end of envious and full of selfish ambition. He just turned it on its head full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. See, almost every one of those attributes only makes sense in dealing with other people. You can only have this place of submissive with other people or considerate with other people or impartial with other people being involved. That's why we have to be willing to serve. See, John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friend. Jesus is referencing that in every sense of the word. God is willing to lay down his life. Like the soldier on the battlefield. Like the policeman going to work every day but also laying down their life like moms and dads doing things they would rather not be doing so to serve their children, to give them a home and food on their tables. That's laying down ourselves. We're a husband and a wife serving one. That's laying down our life on behalf. That is the epitome of love. 
you want to increase the love factor in your life, begin to lay down your life on behalf of someone else. And we have the promise that if we lose our life, for Christ's sake, we will find it. We have that promise. You don't get the short end of the stick with him. People may take advantage of you, but God makes sure you never, when it all weighs out, you end up the winner on the deal. See, as we grow in knowing God and trusting Him, our lives become more about seeing others live in the win that God has for them. As we grow towards that, oh my gosh, how wonderful of a place. You're like, Brandon, that sounds like a fairy tale. No, it sounds like heaven. Where everyone is caring for each other, loving each other, Gosh, there's no need, there's no lack, there's no waste of talent or ability. There's not, there's everything's used to its fullest, and golly, it's, it's perfect. That's what God has called us into that. That's what God has called us into. We think of this concept of having to put others first. As deciding, yeah, I'm gonna be the I'm gonna be the martyr, I'm gonna be the one taking the short end of the stick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As we begin to put each other's first, man, that's when we release the love of God to really work in our lives, and God takes care of us and He promotes us and He makes things happen on our behalf. It's a beautiful thing. But the first step to that is recognizing that we're stuck without Jesus. That we need a savior and Jesus is him. And that God was in Christ serving us, laying down his life for us. So that we can in turn have, have true life and begin to live differently. Instead of selfishly, we begin to live for others. And it starts, it really starts in saying yes to Jesus. I want to create a quiet moment for anybody that's here that needs to begin that journey today. And if you're here and you say, Brandon, I, I believe that God sent Jesus to die for me. That he took care of that on my behalf. He was in Christ reconciling the whole world and that included me. And I believe that today and I want that new life. Nobody looking around. If that's you, I want you to just raise your hand. We want to pray with you. It starts in such an easy way. Awesome. just lift your voice we're just going to pray this together say heavenly father I thank you for Jesus I thank you for sending him for me that he died so that I can live I believe that today I've stepped over from death into life and I choose to give you my life help me to live a new way, not selfishly, but for others. I need your Holy Spirit to guide me from within and make me new all the way through. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for for praying that. If you made that decision, we've got some uh, ways to respond on the screen to let us know that. So I just want us to stand up as we go out of here today. I just want to pray over y'all. So.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy that flows so graciously and freely, Lord, from your presence. Lord, I just thank you, Lord, that we're going to go out of here, Heavenly Father, looking to let your love show forth in our lives. Lord, not how we can grapple and, and claw our way through life, but how we can live a new way, Lord, giving glory to you, Lord, and a blessing everywhere we go. And I just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You have a wonderful, wonderful afternoon. And I'd love for those Jesus Freak videos to start rolling in.